This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. More than a hundred years ago, Albert Einstein was working to revolutionize how we viewed the universe. Instead of Newton's view, where any two masses would instantaneously attract one another from across the universe, Einstein came up with a new conception that space and time were a unified framework, a fabric, if you will, where all the matter and energy in the universe lived, and where the presence of matter and energy curved the fabric of space, and it was this curved space that gave us what we perceive as gravity. Because matter and energy exerted these stresses on space-time, instead of moving in a straight line through absolute space, they would take on a curved path as they fell through the universe. This was the new conception of space-time and of its relationship to matter and energy that brought forth general relativity instead of Newtonian gravity. But there was a problem with Einstein's theory, one that he recognized almost immediately. If you were to take space-time, empty space-time, and fill it with masses, like our universe appeared to be with stars, planets, and more, you would find that this universe was unstable. You would find that these masses would cause space to curve and would attract one another. They would merge together, and instead of a universe full of stars and all these different masses, what you'd wind up with in short order was a universe that collapsed in on itself. In other words, what Einstein found was that a static universe, a universe where you had masses spread all throughout it, was inherently unstable. How do you get around this? Well, Einstein contrived a solution. He invented a cosmological constant. He added in an additional force, an additional term to how space-time behaves to keep these masses from collapsing in on each other, to keep them from attracting one another with too great a force. Instead, he said, this cosmological constant can push outwards with the exact same force that gravity would pull things in. In other words, he contrived a solution to make up for the fact that gravity is unstable, that gravitational attraction, if you give it enough time, is going to override any other inherent properties of a static universe. If Einstein hadn't demanded that the universe be static, if instead he had looked at what his math predicted and what should come out of it, he would have arrived at a very different conclusion. He would have predicted a universe that either expands or contracts. Theoretically, that solution was first found by Soviet physicist Alexander Friedman, for whom the Friedman equations, which are the equations that govern all of modern cosmology, are named after. But it was in the 1920s that the evidence for a non-static universe really began rolling in with the work of Edwin Hubble. Hubble was observing with what was then the world's largest, greatest telescope, 
different nebulae in the skies. These were spiral nebulae. We didn't know they were galaxies at the time, but what Hubble was doing was he was noticing that there were these occasional flare-ups, and he thought they were novae. He thought that these were little tiny ultra-distant novae going off in the universe. So what he did was in October of 1923, he was observing the Andromeda Nebula, which we now know as the Andromeda Galaxy. And he saw a nova go off in one location, and he made a little mark and wrote an N next to it. And then he saw a different nova go off, so he wrote a second N. And then he saw a third, and he marked it again. And then... The next night, he saw a fourth nova go off. But this was a huge deal because it went off in the exact same location that the first one went off in. Now, novae take decades, centuries, or millennia to recharge. They don't recharge in a day. So when he saw that, when he saw a nova the night after he had seen one previously, he knew it wasn't a nova after all, but a variable star. And because we knew how variable stars worked, this enabled him to get a distance to Andromeda. But Hubble didn't stop there. He recognized immediately that if he were to monitor other nebulae, other spirals, that he would be looking at other galaxies. And if you measured the stars within them for variability, you could figure out how far away each of these other galaxies were. Combined with Vesto Sleefer's observations, who measured the spectral redshift of lines in these nebulae, he could plot the velocity, because you can get a velocity if you know how fast an object is moving either towards you or away from you. You can get that from the spectral shift. You could plot velocity versus distance, and you can see how is the universe changing over time. What is the relationship between a galaxy's speed and a galaxy's distance from us. What he found is that after doing this for many galaxies, he found there was a linear relationship, a law, Hubble's law. It says that the speed a galaxy appears to recede from you is equal to the Hubble parameter, the expansion rate of the universe, multiplied by its distance from us, v equals hr, where v is the recession speed, h is the expansion rate of the universe, the Hubble parameter, and r is a galaxy's distance from us. This led to a number of cosmic revelations. One of them was that these galaxies actually were outside of the Milky Way. All of the spiral nebulae we saw were galaxies far outside of our own island universes. We also realized that the universe itself was expanding. Einstein's original prediction for a cosmological constant was completely ad hoc. Einstein would later call it his greatest blunder. But most importantly, by uncovering this law, we realized that the fabric of space was expanding and that if you could determine what the expansion rate of the universe was, then you could know a tremendous amount about the universe's future, how it would evolve into the future, how it would continue to expand and whether it would recollapse or not, and also about the universe's past, where we came from, how quickly things were expanding at earlier times, 
And if you could go all the way back to a beginning, you could even determine how old the universe was. Now, the expansion rate is a tricky thing. We think of things expanding at a certain speed. But because this is a rate that happens in space, the Hubble parameter, the expansion rate of the universe, is in terms of a speed per unit distance. So we give it in kilometers per second per megaparsec. A megaparsec is about three and a quarter million light years because that's a typical distance to a galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is a little less than one megaparsec away from us. The galaxies in the Virgo cluster, of which there are about a thousand, are roughly 14 to 17 megaparsecs away from us, and so on. So a megaparsec is an intergalactic distance, and kilometers per second is a typical speed. Hubble's first value of the expansion rate of the universe was that it was about 600 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, if you want to take a number like that, that's really important. The value of the number will lead to an age of the universe. Imagine that things are expanding now. That meant that space-time, if you were to run the clock backwards, would appear to contract. And if you extrapolate all the way back to when everything was at a single point, well, that's where the idea for the Big Bang came from. That was put forth by George Gamow in the 1940s. If you were to take Hubble's original value for the Hubble constant, for the expansion rate of the universe, and go back to a singularity, you would get an age of the universe that was 2 billion years old. That's a problem because we knew back then that Earth was already 4 billion years old or more from geology and from biological evidence. So there had to be a paradox. There had to be a problem there that we could resolve. That first resolution came about in the 1940s, where astronomer Walter Bade discovered that there were actually two types of variable stars that Hubble had looked at. There were Cepheids that were classical, and there was a new type of Cepheid. This cut the Hubble expansion rate in more than half, and it made, for the first time, the universe older than Earth. Over time, more and more evidence came in. We began to learn how stars worked through the process of nuclear fusion, how they burned, how they lived, and how they died. We also got confirmation that the Big Bang was the correct picture of the universe. The evidence from the leftover glow of the Big Bang, the cosmic microwave background, really hammered that one home. However, we started to find another problem. We came to realize that based on the stars that existed in the oldest places in the universe, in globular clusters, we were finding stars that were up to 16 billion years old. This was way older than what we had measured up to this point in time for the expansion rate of the universe. They determined this could be okay if instead of a number in the hundreds, the Hubble expansion rate were between about 50 and 55. And instead of having a universe that would recollapse or that would asymptote to zero expansion rate and be completely flat, we could have an open universe, a low density universe. 
And this could lead to a universe that was old enough to match up with the ages of these oldest stars. This camp led by Alan Sandage, favored this exact pictures. It was consistent with the Big Bang, and in the 1960s, it emerged as the leading value for the expansion rate of the universe. But you have to be very careful in science. When you want the result to turn out a certain way, when you need the result to turn out a certain way in order to make your picture consistent, that's often the result you find, and that's an example of how we fool ourselves, even in science. In the 1970s, another camp emerged for the expansion rate of the universe. Led by scientist Gérard de Vaucalors, the measurements of the Hubble constant, without any other bias, so they said, looked to be about 100 so it was about twice the value of the Sandage camp. These two camps fought for decades throughout the 70s and the 80s, and the controversy between whether the universe was only about 10 billion years old with a Hubble parameter of 100, or whether it were 16 billion years old with a Hubble parameter of 50, this was why the Hubble Space Telescope was created. It wasn't named after Edwin Hubble. It was named for its key project, to measure the Hubble expansion rate once and for all, and to settle at last this long-standing debate. After more than 10 years of observations in 2001, the final results were released by scientist Wendy Friedman. The Hubble expansion rate was 72, plus or minus about 8 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Both camps were wrong. As additional information came in, it turned out that neither camp was right about what was in the universe either. The universe was flat, contained dark matter and dark energy, and turned out to be 13.8 billion years old. Well, what about those 16 billion year old stars? Well, it turned out there was some uncertainty in that also. Now those stars look like they're between 13 and 14 billion years old, not 16 billion years old. Our understanding of stars has changed as well. Today, everything appears to be consistent. Well, almost appears that everything is consistent. You see, we have two different ways to measure the Hubble expansion rate today. One is we look at the largest scales in the universe. We look at the fluctuations in the leftover glow from the Big Bang and we see how space is curved. We see how fast things appear to be growing and shrinking. We can also look at baryon acoustic oscillations. These are correlations between galaxies on the largest scales, on scales approaching hundreds of millions or even billions of light years. What we get from both of these values is a value for the expansion rate that's 67 plus or minus 1. We get a value that's a little bit on the low end. It's consistent with the Hubble Key Project. It's consistent with 72 plus or minus 8, but the uncertainties are much, much smaller. On the other hand, we can also still do direct measurements to the stars, to Cepheids, and then to distant Type 1a supernovae. And if we build a cosmic distance ladder like that, where we measure the distances to the stars, we measure the periods of the Cepheids, and then we infer the distance to the Type 1a supernovae, we get a different value. We get an expansion rate of 74, plus or minus about 2. 
These two numbers are both consistent with the earlier results, but they're inconsistent with each other given the current errors. This is the current tension in knowing what the expansion rate of the universe actually is, and it's a big deal. So who is correct? How fast is the universe actually expanding? Is there a problem with one of these sets of measurements? A systematic error in the measurements of the closest stars, even by a few percent, if our parallax measurements are off by just a tiny bit, could lower that number of 74 tremendously. It could lower it all the way down to be in agreement with the large scales. The European Space Agency's Gaia mission continues to make unprecedentedly accurate parallax measurements of more stars in our galaxy, almost a billion, than ever before. If that data comes back and we find there is, there has been an error in how far away these nearest stars are, it could resolve the tension completely and we could wind up with a lower value for the expansion rate of the universe than we've thought in decades. On the other hand, there's a degeneracy in the cosmic microwave background and baryon acoustic oscillation data. We could have slightly more dark energy and slightly less matter than we think we do. And if that's the case, the Hubble expansion rate could be higher than the cosmic microwave background currently indicates. The solution, no matter what it is, no matter which camp is right or whether there's some third value that neither camp is touting, will be to accumulate more and better data. Even though we know the Hubble expansion rate better now than at any time before, there's still a controversy and there's still tension between different groups. The search for the ultimate truth about our expansion rate, our cosmic history, and where everything came from exactly is still a quest that continues. Starts with a Bang podcast is made possible through the generous donation of our Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 level and above, including patrons Bakhtiar, Kathy Reese, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Kevin Freehart, Arthur F., Jeroen Van Rin, Marcelo Barnaba, Jason Bissonsini, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Wojcik, Pedro Texera, Danny, Denise Arnaud, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Andrew T. Douglas, Richard Jousey, Chris Hilly, Weller Tractor Salvage, Kevin Barnes, Patrick Dennis, Joel Baxter, Chris Shaw, Radek Nesbida, Ian Lamb, James Nance, Joe McFarland, Amira Sosnick, Rachel Merritt, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Jose Enrique, Harry Plumley, John Methot, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Joe Latone, Philip Radilovic, DGE, John Seal, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks everyone for joining us, and I'll see you next time here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. Thank you.